Welcome, movie fans, to Popcorn Talk Network's Anatomy of a Movie. I'm your host, Dimitri Panos, and today, well, gather around the campfire, everybody, because today we're going to be talking about scary movies to tell in the dark. Stay tuned. Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk. We talk movies. And now, here's Popcorn Talk's Anatomy of a Movie. Hey, welcome movie fans again. This is Dimitri Panos, your host for Popcorn Talk Network's Anatomy of a Movie. Welcome. And yes, we are back. Um, please do check out our pilot, I guess our pilot show or our, uh, uh, our, our rise of the Phoenix show uh, that happened about a week or so ago. I'll go. It goes into all the explanation as to what brought it back, but I can share with you that it was in no small part because of you, uh, the fans and the audience. Uh, you really asked for it. Uh, I never wanted it to go away. Look at that. That's for you. That's for you. And uh, I would be remiss if I didn't uh, introduce to you the man behind the curtain, Ryan. How are you, buddy? Doing well. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. Yeah. I appreciate you uh, uh, producing and engineering the show today. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. And very excited uh, today to talk about uh, scary stories to tell in the dark. So first up, a quick review uh, to talk about the movie. Um uh, should know that anatomy of a movie has always been um, spoilerific. So if you haven't seen the movie, uh, you may want to just put us on pause. Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! There we go. Red alert! Shields up. Spoiler alert! <laughs> uh, so yes, I will talk about plot. I can I can tell you right off the top, there aren't like huge twists in this movie that I really will need to dive into. But if you are the person that likes to go in completely cold, just put me on pause and then come back and then be part of the discussion. And being part of the discussion is a major thing uh, where you can on YouTube. Give your comments, uh, and we'll talk about that towards the end. So first up, uh, scary stories to tell in the dark. Uh, look, it's made for the uninitiated uh, to horror. It's a primer, so to speak. Um, that doesn't make it any less of a horror movie for the true fans of the horror genre. And the movie delivers an atmosphere, ghosts, creeps, and scares, and fun. It's just the kind of cinema that may have influenced a young little lad, Guillermo del Toro, to be the great storyteller that he is today. So Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, if you didn't know, it's based off of uh, the popular young adult horror series written by Alvin Schwartz. Uh, the movie uh, anthologizes some of Schwartz's favorite stories and puts them into one expedient narrative. So you're not necessarily seeing an anthology movie like a Twilight Zone or a creep show. Uh, it is one simple narrative, but there are different stories uh, in which the movie tells. So, um, and the story takes place in a relatively sleepy town, Mill Valley. It is 1968, and it's Halloween. And with the draft... Casting a gloomy fog over the teenage locals, three of which are getting ready for what may be their last Halloween together. So along with their tricks and treats, they meet Ramon, who's just driving through town and has a penchant for Night of the Living Dead. 
The group dared to explore the town's infamously creepy haunted house, the cobwebbed former home of the reportedly murderous Sarah Bellows. Stella discovers a hidden cellar where the lore goes Sarah Bellows was forced to live in and where she wrote stories of the macabre with her own blood as ink. So Stella finds the book, and the cursed proof proves to have a colossal supernatural powers, and almost immediately the book book changes their fates, and one by one, our beloved characters, they find themselves living out the story Sarah Bellows chooses to tell. Harold, the big toe, the red spot, and more. These are all stories that were written as books, and each is inexorably summoned to do battle with their own uniquely terrified deeds. So, director Andre Overdahl, uh, he really nicely captures the setting, the time period, and the atmosphere. I mean, Mill Valley itself is its basically any town USA. It has its own main street, its country farms, uh, and and the time period of 1969 and it being Halloween, Overdahl really does capture that feel, that spirit. It feels like fall, uh, and it feels like it's Halloween time. It's very much like the setting of a scary story. So uh, each story delivers on the chill and scary factor, the creepy factor, yet angry scarecrows, Walking corpses trying to find missing appendages. I mean, these are the tropes that nightmares are made from. So it should be no surprise that the master of telling ghost stories, Guillermo del Toro, is involved in this movie. And we're going to get into his involvement in a little bit. But uh, he was a fan of the books. And let me tell you, his fingerprints are really all over this movie. Uh, damaged characters, vengeful ghosts, creepies, and crawlies. So, but I want to make no mistake, uh, scary stories to tell in the dark is no devil's backbone. Here, Guillermo del Toro gets to have fun. He and Overdahl are campfire storytellers, uh, weaving tales as if you're on your own personal dark ride. Scary stories to tell in the dark isn't meant to scare the bejesus out of you. The movie just wants to make you jump a little and sink into your seat a bit. And that's the fun of horror, isn't it? It doesn't have to be too intense to scare. It can keep suspense with just the flashlight on and make you jump when it clicks off. And that is scary stories to tell in the dark. So um, going and talking about uh, this movie, as I said, it was based off of series of books, and that's a great picture of Guillermo del Toro. Uh, it was based off of these series of books that Alvin Schwartz wrote. Now, personally, uh, the books came out in uh, the 80s. Uh, by then, I was a full-fledged horror fan, uh, but I had kind of moved on. At that point, I was already reading Stephen King uh, Peter Straub, Dean Koontz. Uh, Ryan, how about yourself? Were you familiar with the books? Did you hear about the books? Had you read any of the books? I've heard about these these stories and these these books. I myself had never 
I don't think I just I didn't hit that age group to read them in time. My right. age group was more like Goosebumps. Uh, Goosebumps. Still, still did Stephen King. I'm a huge Stephen King fan, so I just missed the marker on this one for for I believe my age group. But I have heard of them. They are yeah. really well renowned and famous. They're very well uh, renowned and famous, and in some places even banned, which really surprised the heck out of me. Um, so yeah, and and the way that director Overdahl explains um how he ex- how he literally approached scary stories uh he wanted it to mix between horror tale and an ode to the Amblin adventures uh that he grew up loving uh so you had these very well grounded funny real characters battling evil forces um of fables and monsters so Kind of has a Monster Squad appeal to it, although Monster Squad deals with the universal classic horror monsters, uh, and that was really more fun. I believe Scary Stories is a is a little bit scarier uh, than Monster Squad, but I'm a huge fan of Monster Squad, and I'm a pretty decent fan of this movie as well. So, um, working with you know Scary Stories. Uh, to Tell in the Dark was such a hit. Uh, and this is from the, the, the author. Um, again, I was really kind of unawares, but these books, I mean, he comes out with scary stories to tell in the dark. Then there were more scary stories to tell in the dark. Then scary stories three, more stories to chill your bones. And so they were originally illustrated by a gentleman by the name of Caldecott Madal. And artist Stephen Gamble, and the stories came to life not only in words, but they had these uh, unapologetically hideous ink drawings in which Gamble del Toro himself was actually bought some of the original artwork that he has hanging up uh, amongst his offices and home. So, uh, you know, going to Gamble del Toro, uh, talk about him for a little bit. You know, he's always been a monster movie fan. And if you have followed his career, whether it be The Devil's Backbone, Pan's Labyrinth, or even Hellboy, he always deals with these creatures um, and ghosts. Uh, There was um, Crimson Crimson Peak, which I felt, uh, and still do today, it's an amazing ghost story. Uh, that he put together. And then, of course, The Shape of Water, which focuses more on romance. Uh, uh, so, But he's always been fascinated by creatures, and he always looks at them as metaphors for what humans try their best to hide away and who believes scary stories are vital to children's forming psyches, and which is very, very, very interesting because you see those themes, as I mentioned before, in those movies. And that's why I believe this one's like an intermediate. It's it's like a bridge. Uh, even if you're not really into horror, you can watch this movie and it might inspire you to get into a lot more and watch a lot more horror. Uh, that's what I found to be the true fun of this movie. Um and Guillermo del Toro looks at horror in that way, that it can be fun. And he, here's something, Ryan, that, that I'll share with you. I watched the movie at a screening earlier this week, and surprise guest 
We had the director, Irvidal, and Guillermo del Toro. Wow. Yes, it was pretty awesome. And from the man himself, del Toro did explain that, that this was a primer, that this movie was meant to scare a little, but he wanted audiences who may not normally see horror to, at the very least, have fun. So uh, he very much had an influence in, in, in getting this book done. So um, del Toro started with the idea of supernatural book that writes itself. So... How do you encompass? How do you how do you put in about four stories into a movie that has a through line narrative and not make it like an anthology? Well, they made a structure, and it's this book. It's this book that writes itself. Um, number one, I think the concept of the book being written written in this girl's blood because she didn't have ink. It's really cool. And you can go back to, you can reference that to like the Evil Dead, the Book of the Damned, which is also written in blood. Uh, and there are other, tr- there are other horror movies that use that trope, but it's used to good effect here in this movie because it's not so much that the reader reads the book, it's the book reads the reader and finds its darkest fear. And hence we get the cre- the creatures that were so popular in the books and they're put into the movies. Uh, you had a picture up. Uh, I believe one of them was the poster uh, of Harold. Harold is this scarecrow, and it was one of the. To me, it, it was it was it was a great. Uh, it was a great character, a great creature, uh, a really great monster. And what's really cool, I thought about this movie is that. You know when you watch an anthology movie, and Ryan, I'm sure you've watched an anthology movie or two, right? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Even last year with Buster Scruggs. That was right. a great anthology <clears throat> film. With, but it, it's just the right director, the right filmmaker that can make it entertaining the whole ride. Yeah. I, oh, absolutely. But, you know, even when you're watching movies like Creepshow or Twilight Zone uh, or a Cat's Eye, for example, um, you know, there's two two or three stories that are, like, really good. There's one story that's excellent that would stay usually safe for the end. What precedes it is pretty good, and then there's one that's okay. This one, I felt that the monsters, each monster, each creature was as equally scary as Harold. Like, my big fear was that after Harold, we'd have nothing to live up to Harold because he was so fully realized but no, the movie does carry out in each of the other stories I found were as creepy, uh, and in some cases even creepier than our scarecrow, um, uh, our scarecrow Harold. So, uh, Del Toro did start with the books, obviously, but he also felt that the best way to do this is do this framework. Apparently, the book was not in the movie uh, or even the Cerebellos, but this is a great way. It was it was what connected everything and connected our characters. So, um, which I thought to be really, really uh, a very smart idea. Um, so, and in fact, the legend of Cerebellos was inspired by a single sentence that Del Toro uttered, which became the hinge of the entire film. And that is, stories can hurt and stories can heal. And that idea inspired them to write Sarah as a woman who is harmed by stories. 
uh, that are malicious, stories that are lies, stories that drive her to become the monster people say she is. So I really found that to be quite fascinating. And that is a theme that runs throughout the movie. So, um, you know, and the characters, the kids, they... They're teenage kids in, in, in 1969. In 1969, there was, some, there was just a tiny bit of turmoil happening in the country, uh, and the movie reflects that. And again, saying it could be their last Halloween together, not because of the dangers and, and, and the, the horrific peril that they're about to encounter, but a few of them are about to get could potentially be drafted and then not come back. So that is an overlying, uh, that is the fog I was talking about uh, regarding uh, the draft. So um, so the Erie director, so uh, Overdahl, uh, or Andre Overdahl, uh, he has a, uh, and Ryan, you may have watched this, because I know you are a huge Netflix guy uh, person, but he did uh, Troll Hunters. Oh yeah, Troll Hunters. That, I saw that a few years ago. Yeah, he did that. Really he did that. Fascinating, yeah. yeah, use of uh it, it made me think about the budget for that movie because mm-hmm. it's it, it they accomplish a lot with a little. Right. And, and that's what I, I hope he did with this movie. Well, you know, you, you bring up a good point. Um you you bring up a really valid point because the budget on this movie, uh I would have to look it up. Um it's not a hugely budgeted movie. I would say that it most likely is around something that you might see a Blumhouse movie. I would be extremely surprised like if it was, it was around. It was around twenty-five million. Okay, I was going to say I'd be surprised that it, if it was twenty million. But yeah, twenty mil, twenty-five million isn't isn't extraordinary. Extraordinary. Um, so, but uh, it doesn't really show in this movie. Uh, I really think that from a technical standpoint, I thought that the movie worked, and I didn't look at it as being a cheap B movie. Um, in fact, I kind of it, it reminded me of two other horror movies. It reminded me of this one movie called The Lady in White, um, which uh, starred a, a very young Lucas Haas, uh, and it's a really fantastic ghost story. It's a period piece as well, but scary stories here kind of captures a similar feel and tone uh and it it just worked i don't believe that's the same uh lady in white um this one was Catherine hellman was the lady in white uh and it's a really and lucas haas uh, was in it, and it's a really good ghost story. If you haven't seen it, I do recommend it. Uh, and then the other movie it kind of reminded me of was Trick or Treat, which I'm sure a lot more of you have seen. Uh, Trick or Treat to me is 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 near masterpiece, and it's something I watch every Halloween time uh, in October. And but you you understand what I'm talking about? You've seen the movie that it has this feel to it, this feel of autumn this feel of halloween with each story that's presented to you uh even though it time shifts where scary stories does not but it does follow the various groups of characters i think that um trick-or-treat is more um an anthology ish kind of a movie than scary stories is and i'm not saying that scary stories is better than trick-or-treat or even necessarily the lady in white but 
it at least grabs the tone and feel of that Halloween spirit and time. So that's what I really enjoyed uh, the most. So I want to talk a little bit, too, about the VFX since we were talking about um, a budget. So for 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 Overdahl, uh, this was literally his first time working uh, with practical monsters on this level. So they tried to stay away from doing a lot of digital effects, although Harold himself has to have somewhat of a digital effect. And I would say much of the other monsters and ghosts uh, there, but they tried to stay practical as much as possible. So they had a veteran makeup effects and creature sculptor for, uh, called Norman Cabrera. He first actually worked with Del Toro on Hellboy. And for Scary Stories, Del Toro invited him to create two of the most iconic creatures from the collection. Harold, uh, the Scarecrow, and the Tolis Corpse. So, regarding Harold, uh, Cabrera began by casting an actor uh, by the name of Mark Steger. Uh, he cast his head. So, uh, which is pretty cool. And he had a relationship with Mark playing monsters in other movies. And I know that he's an amazing performer. uh, And this is from Cabrera. So we started by making a cast of him. And then we sculpted the features of Harold over his face, constantly turning it around and looking at it from every possible angle. And as it came to life with Mark, it was really cool. And I do have to say, Harold is featured in the trailer and it is one creepy ass scarecrow, probably one of the creepier scarecrows that I've seen in horror movies. And the way that his walk is really um, kind of creepy as well. Yeah, it it, it delivered. Uh, he was the first monster to appear uh, technically on screen. Uh, to play out his story, and it was really, it, it was really, really cool. Um, so, the next one that they worked on, the big toe, and again, this is a character that is seen in the movie, uh, and this is more or less a zombie type corpse, uh, and and looking for her big toe, which ended up. In some semblance of a stew, that one, that one of our misfortunate characters uh, was dipping into a little bit uh, as it was uh, his supper, and uh, this 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 creepy character limping through the house saying, "Where is my toe?" Um, is actually it was re- it was good. It was really scary, and it delivers a good. Um, uh, it delivered a good punch. One thing to know too that I found very interesting is that the monsters, the stories within this narrative, each of them had a, a, like their own beginning, middle, and end. So they were short stories within a larger structure. And fascinatingly enough, they did they they played out as stories, and they. They have a beginning. Uh, there is definitely a middle part to each one, and then there's an end. Uh, and it, you, as uh, the movie-going audience, as well as the characters who are trying to save their friends, are going through like there's almost like a time crunch. Um, it, it, I mean, and although it's not written on the screen, 
Uh, yeah, they're, they're trying to get from A to B to maybe save their friends from, uh, from a fate. Uh, that that nobody would want. So, um, but but the big toe. Uh, so, Norman here really followed Gamel's um, artwork, and so they um, used Javier uh, Javier Botte, who portrayed the skeletal Tolas corpse. So it was an actual actor, and let's so. This led to using Javier as a performer. He was a performer from Spain who was incredibly thin and helped us to make the corpse look like a living cadaver. And it does. And I think uh, you've seen the movie. You would agree. And it's taking right from the story pages uh, of the books. So, uh, And then there was actually another one of my unsettling scenes was this pale lady. Um... She appeared in the Schwartz books, more scary stories to tell in the dark, and they made it as accurate and as detailed as how it was explained and drawn in the book, which is really cool. And creating uh, something about her really spoke to me, uh, and the way she looks like a nice older lady. To me, I looked at her as this really disgustingly bloated as if had drowned in a lake and had been pulled up, say like three weeks later who walks very slow, but has the, the wave and the come on over here so I can hug you of a mother or a grandmother. Again, it was a really uh, creepy part of the movie. I felt, and that's it. Right there. Yeah, Ryan, you nailed it. And really uh, just so distorted and bloated. And it be, it was, again, I felt it was a very good story, a creepy tale uh, that we got to go through. Um, so, and then, of course, we have uh, a pale lady, which we were talking about. Then the jangly man is another popular one. And the jangly man is just... Well, he's exactly that. It's a person that can metamorphosize and bend and contort into any way to get out of any space possible. And it is attacking with a vengeance. Probably the character that, outside of Sarah Bellows, has the most vengeance in going after somebody uh, in the movie. And again, I found it to be... I found it to be somewhat creepy and scary. Uh, I thought that the characters, the creatures worked. And in part, as I always say in horror, why does it work? Because I actually kind of cared for the characters uh, to a decent extent. Uh, I wanted to see these teenagers make it through. Um, you know, I think a major mistake in, in, in horror movies is when you're writing for teenagers or adults for that matter, and you don't care about them when they're going up against a horrific foe, you don't necessarily care. And if they're written with, with some semblance of depth, when they're out trying to run for their lives, you actually kind of care for them. And I found that to be something here uh, as well. So I mentioned in my review about this haunted house, and there is a haunted house. How can you have a Halloween ghost story without a haunted house in this 
any town USA. So they found uh, during the production was unearthing a pitch perfect stand in for this mansion uh, in a former Victorian oil town in Ontario, Canada, no less. And it was the location manager who found this amazing house in a little town called Petrolia. Uh, and just outside of Toronto. And when we entered it and we went inside, uh, it was as fantastical, uh, over it all says, it was as fantastical inside as it was outside. And it almost felt like the house was created to be this haunted house in the movie. So the house was built at a home in night in eight. 1990, and it was by a family of wealthy industrialists. In the movie, the ghosts uh, were wealthy industrialists who lived in this house, and they commissioned the structure to echo the Richardsonian Romanesque style, uh, the grand and imposing take of Gothic architecture deemed up by Henry Hobson Richardson. So the house was so intriguing that the production designer set out to recreate the interiors of the house so that they would have, of course, more flexible sets. And the Petrolia house already reeked of wealthy industrial evil baron, and that was perfect for the narrative that they wanted to set, uh, that they wanted to tell. Um, and then they expanded on that. So Again, using a setting, coming up, okay, we're going to recreate this set. We'll build sets in a soundstage, um, which is very extraordinarily common. Uh, so that way they can manipulate a camera, move a camera, light it any which way they want. And so this house in Petrolia, uh, they looked at the famed couple's house in St. Louis as well. Uh, it was a castle-like Richardson Romanesque mansion. And... Gothic interior touches intensified the atmosphere right down to wallpaper, and wallpaper was very important in the late 19th century, and they had these little devil motifs in it, and again, all of this can be seen because they captured it perfectly, and this is a great setting that plays a key uh, that plays in a key moment, or a couple of key moments uh, of this movie, and again, it's that haunted house vibe uh, that again, I think it just lends to ramping up some of the scares. So um, I thought that that was really, really cool. Um, and regarding, uh, we'll talk a little bit too about uh, some of the costumes. So Ruth Myers is the costume uh, designer here on Scary Stories. And it was Gamble's artwork that lit her desire to work on the project. So one, as I was like doing research and finding, uh, trying to come up with interesting tidbits, you know, dressing the teenagers for 1969, she didn't want them to, they had to fit in within not only just the time period, but also the feel of the movie. And, but really what, what, what her, what she find, what she said, what Myra said was her coup de grace is that um, was dressing Sarah Bellows, who was brought to eerie life by an actor, Kathleen Pollard. And it started with a palette that matched what David Brisbane was doing with the house wallpaper. So for Sarah, Guillermo always said he wanted a Baroque dress, but 
it turned out into a very Victorian straitjacket. So I'm very proud of that piece because it feels of its era, yet it's extremely scary, this brutal dress with its terrible chains. And so the straitjacket gown was a knockout for Andre Overdahl. Roots design, he says, allowed us to have this amazing moment when you first see Sarah, and she emerges as a dark shape in the shadows, but then slowly you see what she's wearing is not actually a dress, but this worn-down, complicated straitjacket. And I have to say that it really was uh, pretty chilling. So you brought up, um, talking about practical effects, uh, you just brought up, Again, this is a scene that's right out of the trailer. Um, we'll talk about her. Um, I want to. I'll, I'll talk about her in just a second because, um, as as uh, I'm trying to find what that character's name is, um, she had her own. Um, uh, she, she had her own. Uh, uh, she had to go in for prosthetics uh, to get this big. To get this big zit, let's call it, on her face, um, and it, she said, and it, it, it started off as a red little pimple, but as her story goes along, it just gets bigger and bigger, and there's motion inside until a little spider leg pops through. And she said, as she's walking through the sets, she almost forgot that she would have it on. Then she'd look in a mirror, and it really scared the heck out of her so um she was uh she was she, and and the actress was well kathleen was it was sarah bellows um she actually played the sister to um austin williams dean norris natalie gans that's it it was ruth yes it was ruth natalie gans on was ruth and she was she look she had probably I, again, it was another look. If you don't like spiders, that's all I'm going to say. This scene is going to creep you out. That's it. That's I, all I'm going to say. I got to ask a question. Yes. Because so uh, up top, and I've heard this from a few people now. Yeah. You know, Guillermo del Toro said that this is a primer horror movie. Mm-hmm. From this entire discussion, from everything you've mentioned, all the stories that are being told, from all the imagery, this does not seem like a primer horror movie to me. This seems like <laughs> a. It, but the thing is, yeah. I don't know if it's not. Uh, that scary or anything. I just think that I don't. I wouldn't go see this if I wasn't into horror movies. This I, looks terrifying. I, it, I think this doesn't look like a primer horror movie. Is what I'm saying. I, you know, it it is in the sense that what what we have today as horror and look, I think as 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 a lover of the genre, we're in really great times for horror movies because we have. Bigger budgeted horror movies, It Chapter 2, for example, coming out uh, a little bit later this year. And then we have Blumhouse. Right. And Blumhouse has produced some really good horror movies and then kind of B-level horror movies. Um, But I will say, as far as this goes, this does feel like a – it's almost like a dark house ride at a really good fair or carnival where it's like a haunted mansion. Do you think that the, the marketing did what he, what he said to achieve justice? I think so. I think what like I think what the marketing accomplished was for fans of horror, they're going to go, 
they're they're going to they're going to be in. I was in from the trailer. But here's the deal: it doesn't necessarily go. It's the movie is PG thirteen, so you're not going to get a lot of gore, and it's not going to have the intensity, say of 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 like say James Wan's The Conjuring movies, right? It won't have that. You know, there'll be a jump scare, but then the movie moves on. Um, this jangly man character, while um, it's a scary image, but again, it's not unlike a haunted maze. And actually, a haunted maze is is a great example of what I look at this as scary stories is. You're walking in a haunted maze. Number one, if you're at a Universal Horror Nights or anything, you're there to have fun. You want to be scared, but you're going to have fun. And even when you walk through a haunted maze, you're kind of waiting for something, someone to pop out at you and scare you. But once that happens, the catharticism is is like you let out the sigh. And if you're with your friends, you end up laughing. Does that make sense? Like you go through a haunted maze to have fun, to have a good time, but you go in to to be scared somewhat. You're not so ultimately scared that when you walk out of a maze, you have a heart attack and die. But you come out with your friends going, wow, that was really scary. That was a good time. And a lot of people who don't necessarily like horror movies they do go to these haunted mazes, particularly around Halloween. And I think as we're getting closer to Halloween, that's why I think this movie can be accepted as as a PG-13. Now, would I take a six- or seven-year-old to this movie? No, not at all. This isn't a kid's movie, um, per se. Would I I have loved this as a seven-year-old? Probably, because I was already watching some horror movies. Would I have loved it as an 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16-year-old? Absolutely. I would have had a really good time because at that point, I had already been in a horror movies. And this movie, again, it really isn't meant to scare the bejesus out of you and have you go home like, oh, Jesus, I don't want to enter my house because it's so dark. But it, but it wants to make you jump in a way that a campfire tale like a good storyteller will, will will make you jump. So it wants you to have a little bit of fun. Um, you know, I guess, you know, I can, someone's, I don't know if I necessarily classify Gremlins as a horror movie, but you laughed at Gremlins, even though there were some horrific dark elements in the movie. Does that make any sense? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think, I think uh, I'm just, I was a little put off by um, the idea that, I think like a, for a primer horror movie, for people who don't typically go, uh, maybe if the marketing was a little less intense, I'd be more apt to go. But I love the point you make about uh, Halloween time. I, people always seem to go watch horror films, even if that's not their their typical jam. So exactly. I, I think that's a great point, and we're, we're approaching that season. So we'll see what happens with the box office when people go up. It, it, you know, I'm glad you mentioned that because thus far, um, you know, scary stories. It delivered uh, so so it was in previews uh, Thursday night and it did two point three million, um, which isn't which isn't too shabby, which isn't too shabby at all. Um, and this is uh, actually coming right from right from from Box Office Mojo. So two point three million from over twenty five hundred locations. So it compares to movies like the the Escape Room um, and Pet Cemetery. Now 
One opened at 28.1. The other uh, opened at 24.5, respectively. I can see this doing mid-teens, possibly 20. Um, Again, I I found it scary enough, but I do go to horror movies um, often. Uh, For me, the movie where it really worked was its atmosphere and its tone, and I enjoyed the monster aspect of it. And I could have been with someone. Well, actually, I was with someone. I was with, uh, uh, well, your friend of mine, uh, who would be with me a little bit later today, Kit, who's oh. not the biggest of horror movies uh, fans, but she enjoyed it as well. Um, so I think that it does work in that regards. And it gives you just enough. I'll put it to you this way. Uh, I watched Supernatural, and there are elements of Supernatural that are in this because... You know, you have this book that's controlling ghosts. You got to try to get rid of this book. Supernatural had was violent, blood. Uh, it was creepy. This is PG thirteen on a bigger screen, so it's going to deliver some more scares. But I didn't find it to be gratuitously violent and or uh, gratuitous, gratuitously <laughs> going to get that word out uh, gory. Or or gross. So it is still very PG-13 uh, in that regards. Uh, horrific scenes, perhaps, but I think that all in all, these scary stories, uh, they really did work. So I know the plan was to try to get some more sequels uh, to tell some of the other stories from these books. We'll see what happens. I don't know. Uh, like I said, it will be fun to find out this weekend how scary stories to tell in the dark fares. Um, I'm pretty sure that 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 Hobbs and Shaw will most likely be number one. This is a smaller movie, but I think it's going to find its core audience. And I'm going to go another step further, Ryan. I think that as time goes on, more and more people, they're going to get into this movie and it's going to make it on their list of horror movies to watch during October. Like, I have a list, and it grows. This movie, I'm going to add it to the list because I think it's good enough to do. So, um, yeah, there you go. I think that's... uh, We can wrap up on scary stories to tell in the dark. Um, Folks, audience, people, uh, I want to say thank you. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, And if I may ask, if you're a fan, I love you for it. I appreciate it. Um, do you, do us a favor. Uh, you're a fan of movies. Your social circle, I'm sure, they're fans of movies. Uh, talk to them about anatomy of a movie. Um, tell them, hey, you know, if you like it, why you like it. Tell them they should check us out. Really appreciate it. Or really appreciate it. Also, too, on your social networking, which I'm telling you right now, you're probably far more savvy at it than I am. Tweet out Anatomy of a Movie. Let everybody know about it. Because I'd like to get more and more viewers and more and more fans. You can comment on what I talk about here on YouTube. Uh, I read the comments and I'll, I'll even respond. Uh, speaking of the social medias, uh, you can find me on, well, right here, Popcorn Talk Network's Anatomy of a Movie. I'm a guest panelist, too, on Meet the Movie Press. And you can find me or support me on Twitter's at Dimitri Panos, that's it, at D-E-M-E-T-R-I-P-A-N-O-S. 
That's my Twitter handle. It's my name. It doesn't get much easier than that. And isn't um, isn't my Twitter on the on the tag to this? We'll have it in the description. You'll the have it in the description, so you can just do that. Please support me in the Twitters. Ryan, how about you? Thank you very much for your help. Uh, where can people? You can find me at Ryan Nilsson, um, underscore at Ryan Nilsson, N-I-L-S-E-N, underscore. There you go. So thank you again for another episode of Anatomy of a Movie. Stay tuned because there's going to be more later on. Uh, you will add Dora and the Lost City of Gold. Yes, Dora the Explorer is back. But thank you for tuning in to Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. I hope I didn't creep you out too much. Take care. From producers Maria Menounos, Kevin Undergaard, and the entire Popcorn Talk Network, we would like to thank you for tuning in. For questions or comments, be sure to visit PopcornTalk.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of the Popcorn Talk Network. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Popcorn Talk Network or its owners or principals.